Good day, ladies and gentlemen. What a privilege and honor to be with you again, as always. I hope that wherever you are on this planet, you're doing fantastic. We've got another amazing episode of the show for you today. We've got Moro Gillen on, and we are talking about his new book, 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of everything. We talk about a lot of different topics in this episode. We talk about life as a university professor, the trend of technology, uh, being an orchestrator of technology, examining, examining AI, the most important trend, the new role of women in society, the future of finances, cryptocurrencies, why climate change doesn't affect everyone equally, the baby boom in Africa, the number one cure being transparency, the root problem of inequality and so much more this is a fantastic episode i know you're going to enjoy it if you like it please share it far and wide tag me on social media if you've been listening to the show you know i'm banned shadow panned and deleted so any share is incredibly helpful i want to thank all of my patrons for uh, tossing a buck in the bucket and also thank you christian um i love it when uh you know it's great when a, a patron will give me a bit more money uh thanks james for doing that and then uh it's even maybe more satisfying when a patron you know gives a little bit less they don't they don't just leave they just you know something must change in their lives and they and they make it a little bit less they could just delete it but they change it to a smaller amount and i'm just so grateful for that because um if everybody chips in a little bit it really makes this uh show possible and it, it really does save my butt a lot of times so thank you so much to my patrons i really love and appreciate you guys um, what else? Um, go to mapillaire.com, sign up for the email list because censorship's a real thing. Go to linktree forward slash for my links for Telegram and Discord. And for those of you guys who want a step-by-step master system for overcoming self-sabotage, strengthening your connection with spirit and designing and living the life of your dreams, check out the absolutely phenomenal Soul Compass course, which is currently free when you join the Academy um, with all the other exclusive contents that's there with his um, exclusive content from guests, meditations, brainwave entrainment, a lot of cool stuff in there. And so you can find that at mattbelair.com as well. And if you want to go a step further than that and you want to apply for some coaching and work one-on-one with me, I would love to help you build your dreams and be a resource for you. Um, I'm working with some amazing people right now and I have some openings. So if you're interested in that, just go to mattbelair.com forward slash coaching and we will make it happen. Uh, The quantum heart hypnosis is coming down the pipe soon. It's going to be a very powerful meditation series and so much more. So stay up to date and uh, lots of lots of cool stuff coming down the pipe. So let's get into today's episode. Remember, the best way to support the show is to do one kind act wherever you are in the world for a human being or even any sentient being or just a kind act in general. Um, And so, yeah, let's come to a state of peace and coherence before we dive in. Wherever you are in the world, just stop what you're doing. Take in a deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath and let it out slowly, filling every cell, muscle, and fiber of your being with peace, joy, contentment, courage, enthusiasm, inspiration, and ready to take on this amazing episode with Moro Gillen. Hello and welcome to the Mastermind, Body, and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. Today's guest is a Spanish-American sociologist political economist, management educator, professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, 
and director of the Penn Lauder Center for International Business Education and Research. He is the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. Welcome to the show, Mauro Gillen. Matt, thank you so much for having me. I really look forward to uh, having a great conversation with you about mind and spirit. Yeah, yeah. I'm so excited to have you on the show. I, I got um, sent all your information. I got a chance to browse your book and your work. And, you know, that's a, just a little bit of your bio. You, you've had a really amazing background. You're incredibly educated and knowledgeable in so many different fields. So um, why don't you just start with a little bit of background on who you are and what your work is and then the inspiration um, into writing the book, because I had, definitely have a lot of questions about it. Oh, great. Uh, so uh, look, I'm above everything else, a curious individual. Uh, so you remember this book that uh, oftentimes um, people read in English, um, Curious George? Uh, so I'm like Curious George, right? I like thinking about what's going on out there and how can I explain it, right? And also, how can I tell what may happen next or what the world is going to look like, uh, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now? Um, so that's who I am. I mean, I, I try to use what I've learned over the years. And quite frankly, I think I've learned more by just, um, you know, studying and reading rather than by attending universities and getting degrees, right? I mean, they gave me a way of thinking about the world. That's for sure. Uh, but quite frankly, I learn. And one of the things that I do, I don't know whether you would be interested in this, Matt, is every evening before I go to bed, I force myself to read something for 15 minutes something on a topic that I know nothing about. That's something that I do every evening, right? And it's just uh, fantastic, right? Because every, every day before going to bed, I learn something new. That's interesting. I, I'd be curious how you figure out uh, so many new items each day. Like you'd have to constantly be stretching your mind of like, what do, I, what do I know nothing about? So give me a few examples of something that you've read recently. Uh, well, one example would be I know next to nothing uh, quite frankly, uh, about, uh, for example, um, Australia, right? So uh, I went to high school in Spain and I, you know, Australia was almost never mentioned, right, in any of my classes. And so, uh, you know, I've come to realize how absolutely amazing Australians are. And for example, I, I, I read a couple of things about um, surfers in Australia and the surfing culture, right? So those are the kinds of things that attract me. I'm a history buff also, so I like to read about, um, you know, big uh, enigmas in history, right? Uh, it's like uh, why, uh, you know, uh, something happened. Uh, why did this empire fall apart or, uh, and so on and so forth. So I just look for things, you know, I think about, okay, so I don't know anything about this part of the world. I don't know anything about this guy or this uh, woman in history who did something. Let me Google and let me see what I can find that uh, something that I can read in just 10 or 15 minutes before going to bed. You're like a human Wikipedia. You're probably amazing at, uh, at trivia at the bars. You're gonna want <laughs> well, you to <laughs> that's one way of putting it. But um, I think it's just, uh, it's interesting to, you know, read about things that you don't know because then you start making some connections to it, right? Yeah. Uh, because if you always read about things that you already know and you just keep on digging deeper and deeper and deeper, you're just getting into a hole, right? And, um, you know, yeah, you become very knowledgeable about something really tiny, but what's the point of that? 
Yeah, you know, that's fascinating because uh, of all the shows, I've probably done about 400 now. No one's actually given that suggestion. So that's definitely a, a new one and, and something fun to do. So let's talk a little bit about um, the book and the trends. Like what inspired you to write that? And I'd love to dive into some of the concepts. You know, I feel like predicting the future is something that's interesting to me. When I was younger, I, I, I read books on consciousness and I still do, but one of them was like predicting the future or, you know what I mean? Like, how can we predict these trends? And people want to do that for money. They want to do that investments. They want to do it for places to live. But now we're in a world that nobody, maybe, maybe some people predicted, but it's, it's going to be changing rapidly. And I'm, sh I'm curious if like what you wrote in the book is still going to apply to the COVID world or I see in the book, you call it the black swan event. Do you have any idea how that's going to shape anything or the trends of, of what's going to be, you know, what, what can be expected? Yeah. So let me, let me begin by answering, uh, you know, the first part of your question, which I think is uh, really important. And you actually put your finger, uh, you know, as you continue talking on what my answer is going to be. So wh why did I get into this? Right. And the answer is very simple, which is, you know, about eight, seven years ago, I was making all of these presentations, you know, as a professor, I have to teach my classes, uh, but I also enjoy, you know, going out there. And sometimes I speak to high school students. Sometimes I speak to executives. Sometimes I speak to, um, you know, working mothers, other times at, you know, other kinds of gatherings. And I was getting this overwhelming sense that people were getting very anxious about what was going on in the world. So I'm talking about uh, six or seven years ago. So you can imagine now, you know, how, uh, what the reaction is, right? So I was getting, you know, as I was speaking to these audiences, um, you know, face to face most of the time, I was um, under the impression that people were lost, right? So people could recognize that certain things were going on out there in the world and that things were changing, uh, but they couldn't make sense out of them, right? And so I thought, well, you know what? Let me prepare the presentation in a different way so that I tell people this is where we're going, right? So I decided to focus on what the world might look like in five or 10 years from now, because I felt that people were, once again, extremely worried, very concerned about their predicament, about their situation right now, right? Uh, and I thought that the best uh, therapy for them, so to speak, I'm not a doctor, but you know, the best therapy would be well, let me tell them about where we're going to be end up being, right? In five years, in 10 years down the road. And I, I didn't decide at the beginning that the time horizon would be 10 years. Uh, that, um, you know, slowly developed in my mind as I saw that by the year 2030, some really important changes would have already occurred in the world. And we can, of course, get into those, uh, you know, a little bit later on. But that's how I got into this. I mean, it was uh, an attempt on my side to try to, give people a sense of direction, right? A sense of where are things going, right? And I felt that the only way of doing that was to try to describe for them what the world would look like in 10 years from now. Well, I'd, I'd love to hear your take on that. And the book covers a variety of topics. I feel like people in general struggle with an uncertainty. You yeah. know, like in my life, I'd look at uh, my dad, for example, and one of the I'm resistant to, let's say, the mainstream for many reasons, uh, but one of them was growing up and his job, uh, he's a machinist, and the factory closed down and then they, they didn't have to pay him out his pension. So he lost so much money and he worked an incredible amount of overtime. And then I thought, wow, that's incredibly unfair. Like you can't really trust, you know, sometimes these other institutions. And if you look at that in, in many ways, there's, there's a lot of people who will put their faith in a system and then they won't get the return that they want. So 
we as people, we want certainty and we want security, but we don't live in a certain or secure world. And yeah. so I'm curious um, if your work, you know, what you do can help people just navigate a little bit better. Because if you understood, if you have more information and you have better information on how to, to do something, you're more equipped to deal with the adversity. You're more equipped to deal and adapt with change. And if humans are anything, we're adaptable. And I feel like that's what we need to do. And if we have good information, we can be even more adaptable. So I'm curious. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, but to take your argument one step further, what you also need to give people is an easy way into the topic, right? Because, I mean, you, you're emphasizing, oh, there's all of this uncertainty. There's all of this complexity. Oh my goodness, the, the sky is going to fall upon us and all of that. And what people are, uh, you know, yearning for when uh, they attempt to cope with all of that is one simple thing that will help them understand, oh boy, yeah, I can see how that uh, results in that kind of situation that you're telling me about. So the, I made the decision early on, maybe about five years ago, that the initial topic that I was going to present to people, right, and, and it's actually the first chapter in the book, would have to do with babies, okay? Because everyone understands what a baby is. And I think, uh, you know, most people know where babies come from, okay? And it's not Paris. <laughs> and, uh, you know, babies uh, have consequences. I mean, how many of them we have? When do we have them? Um, what happens to them? Uh, you know, whether they uh, get enough food and and uh, whether they get uh, taken care of, uh, whether they get an education or not, uh, and so on and so forth. So I thought that, you know, following the babies, right, is, is a great way of uh, getting into um, the topic. And it's also something that is about the future. So people always, you know, when, when, when people think about a baby, they think, oh, the potential that a human being may have. They think about the future. They think about what that tiny human being is going to become. So I thought that babies had a great metaphor, if I may put it that way, right? It's like a great, um, you know, like a thing to think about when you want to focus your mind on the future, right? Because babies are the future, right? That's what we all understand. Yeah, absolutely. And it reminds me of um, speaking with some of the Native Americans that I've learned from. They talk, a, they do seven generation thinking. Like yep. they think seven generations ahead and behind. And I thought that's, well, further behind, but like if your actions and what you're doing, how is that going to affect seven generations later? It's so interesting way of thinking because we're culturally, it's interesting. And I'd love to have your take on this because some people are complaining that the younger class, they're, they're, they don't have the work ethic, like the 20 year olds and the 30 year olds. I know that I had it much easier than my parents did. And it mm -hmm. created a different uh, type of person in a different circumstance. But I also have combined with work ethic, new opportunities because of technology, because of all these different things. You know, I have basically a TV and radio show just through the power of the internet. That job was not here in, in high school when my dad is suggesting different jobs for me to have. So um, I guess one of the things I'll ask you, where do you see technology going? Because I just watched the Netflix uh, documentary, Social Dilemma. I've also studied a lot about consciousness. So I feel like these tools can be used for good, but they can also be used for manipulation. And we might not know all the consequences for them. Some people are talking about 5G and they're worried about that. And so I'm just curious if uh, your general take on, on technology and where we might be headed. Well, technology is, is, is one of those uh, big trends that uh, inevitably we have to consider in any discussion about the future, right? Um, and uh, look, uh, 
I think uh, both you and I, whom I, I think uh, we both belong to the same generation, right? We were probably born around, uh, you know, plus minus five or 10 years around the same time. And look, I mean, we are privileged to actually go through a moment in history in which we can see all of these things just unfolding before our eyes, right? And look, when I tell people about technological change, it's always the same thing, which is that you have to find a way of feeling that you're in control, okay? And of course, collectively as a society, I think we also need to think about ways in which, and I'm going to give you an example in a moment, we can be the you know, orchestrators of technological change as opposed to just the recipients, just the people who are affected by it, uh, because we cannot be powerless about it. And let me give you an example, artificial intelligence, right? Everyone is speaking about this right now, right? It's like, are machines going to outsmart us at some point? Are we going to get to that point that, you know, they call it the singularity, right? Which I, I think has major implications, by the way, for our sense of self as human beings, right? And how we, we think about ourselves and our role in the universe. I mean, if there's going to be something that is smarter than we are, that completely changes our position, right, in the universe, right? In the universe as we know it. And, you know, I think uh, the problem with artificial intelligence is that I think we've been paying too much attention to these crazy people who are saying that at some point machines will outsmart humans, which I don't think is ever going to come. Although if you remember Stephen Hawking, the famous physicist said that at some point that will happen. And he said, this is going to be the end of everything. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, I think our attitude towards something like, you know, artificial intelligence, which is, of course, is going to change a lot of things. It's going to probably change your job. I think it's definitely going to change my job is not how can we have artificial intelligence replace human beings, but rather how can artificial intelligence make human beings better at what they do, right? So how can I use artificial intelligence to make me a better professor, a better lecturer, a better researcher also, right? How can it make you be a better uh, communicator of ideas, right? Um, how, can, can, how can it make a doctor better, right? Because doctors, we see them as uh, these uh, highly trained, highly educated people, but they don't know everything. In fact, all the time they admit, I don't know what's going on here, right? So how can we make them better? Uh, I think that's the attitude that we should have when it comes to technology. And of course, Matt, I think the other thing that we need to do is, and I think in Canada, you, you do a much better job at that than here in the United States, which is um, we have to make sure that nobody's left behind. Because I think many of the convulsions, maybe uh, many of the frictions that we see these days in society um, are the direct result of us forgetting that some people are left behind, right? Because of technological change. And if they're left behind when they're 25 years old, they can recover, they can somehow reinvent themselves. But if they're left behind when they're 50 years old or 55, they still have another 30 years to live on average. And that's harder because, you know, at that point in life, it's a little bit more difficult for people to adjust. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. And I guess, you know, immediately I think of the Native Americans again, too, because um, when I was sitting down talking with Clifford, he, he would, uh, Clifford Mahuti's a Zuni elder, and he just said, you know, your, your culture doesn't take care of your parents. You know what I mean? Like you're putting your, your old people in homes, like you're not, you're not taking care of them. The family unit is essentially broken. And for us, it was very sacred and very important. And now with, you know, technology, you know, I think you can use technology for good and use it as a tool. And then it, it can also start consuming you and 
start to get out of control and become um, addictive and maybe unserving. And I watched uh, Elon Musk's presentation for Neuralink. And I was like, oh my God, immediately when I saw that, I was like the Borg, because technology, it, it's um, evolving exponentially. It's not going one plus one is two. It's going one plus one is two and then four and then eight and it's really going. And so if Neuralink is, let's say the Atari, did you ever have an Atari when you were a kid? Um, uh, not <laughs> me, but my, uh, my daughters have. Yeah. Yeah. So I imagine that's how I kind of like, tell people are super Nintendo. Some people won't know what Atari is, but super Nintendo, if you imagine that, and now we've already got the Oculus and the 3d stuff. If the Neuralink is the Atari version, where will we be in 20 years? And I think if we, like, like you said, put a positive frame around it, then all of it can be used for good. And I guess my concern is power structures getting it and using it for um, not ideal scenarios. Yep, yep. But you see, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the issue of video games and uh, you know, how much time we spend on social media and all of that. And you know, one of the things that I uh, you know, learned in the process of uh, doing research for this book was that Actually, the extent to which we have become so keen on spending hours on end using technology, it's actually reducing our appetite for having sex. So I don't know whether you've uh, you know, ever thought about that, uh, but it's extremely well documented to the point, by the way, that when people have to go without technology for some reason, and I'll give you an example in a moment, then they start having more sex and therefore more babies. I mean, there's this uh, classic uh, you know, event in Zanzibar, which is an island um, off the coast of East Africa. Um, uh, 12 years ago, they had a blackout, no power for one month, which is a very long period of time, right? So it's a developing country. They went without power for one month. But you see, uh, there was a part of the island that never had a connection to the grid, right? Uh, and therefore, they were using diesel generators all the time. So that part of the island didn't go without power. They continued to have power because they had the diesel generators. And guess what? Nine months later, which, if you remember, is the gestation period for a baby. Nine months later, in the part of the island where they continued to use all of these gadgets, right, um, because they had diesel generators, uh, there was no change in the number of babies relative to normal times. But in the other part of the island, where they went without power for one full month, there was a 21% increase in the number of babies above normal levels, okay? Uh, so look, technology is changing everything. It's changing uh, the way we meet people. As you know, before we had uh, you know, uh, dating platforms, uh, people used to meet uh, other people at church or at school or through friends or perhaps at the bar or the disco, right? Uh, when we were young. <laughs> Um, but now, increasingly, people are using dating platforms and social media to meet other people. And uh, that raises all sorts of questions in my mind, right? Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I, that makes sense to me anyway. I feel like we are very distracted on our, on our phones quite a bit. Um, and I, I see it as like um, unintended negative consequences, like, you know, parents sometimes they'll just give the, the phone to the kid and they're watching YouTube and whatever. They might not know everything until 10, 20 years later of how that's going to affect them. Maybe it's going to affect them positively. We don't know that yet, yeah, uh, yeah. But, you, but usually it's um, something negative. Yeah. But look, I, I'm not saying it's negative actually, because uh, you see for uh, same-sex relationships, for example, uh, you know, 85% of them now in the United States, I'm sure a similar percentage is in Canada, they get to know each other online, okay? 
through one of these platforms. Well, I think that empowers people who are attracted to other people of the same sex or gender. Uh, but for heterosexual relationships, um, you know, this is the funny thing that you might uh, think, oh, uh, probably those relationships that start online don't last as long, right? Or they're not as, you know, in terms of quality as good. And it's actually the opposite. You see, the only type of um, relationship between people of a different gender, okay, so I'm talking about heterosexuals, that results in higher rates of, um, you know, a dissolution of those uh, relationships are when you meet other people through friends. Mm. <laughs> so meeting people through friends is actually the worst way of uh, <laughs> finding your partner. And I think the reason is that then there's, it's just overwhelming. There's this, it's too dense of a, of a social network. You see what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's so much better to try to find your other half, right? Through some other means, including uh, digital platforms, because then the pre-existing relationships, you know, or, or, or the density of those relationships is not as bad. And therefore you can build a better one-on-one -on -one relationship with somebody else. You see what I'm saying? So there's mm. all sorts of uh, unanticipated things. But let me tell you, in the future, I think we're going to be using these kinds of platforms even more so. And by the way, the pandemic only accelerates that because now bars are closed, right? You cannot go out and have a drink. So what are people doing? They're using social media even more so than in the past. Yeah, well, you know, I do have some specific questions, but I want to start with a, a general one because you said one of the things you learned, and I'm curious in studying these trends and how you think it's going to reshape the future, what are some of the most important things that you learned? Um, I know you did a chapter on finances, and I want to kind of specifically dive into that at some point. But, you know, just in general, when you did the research and you see the trends, you know, what's most important for people to know so they can kind of surf the wave? Because sometimes if you don't see it coming and it collapses on you. But if, if you have, if you know it's coming, you kind of surf the wave. So I'm just curious uh, what came out for you that was most important to know. Well, quite frankly, the trend that made the most impression on me in terms of how many consequences it has for so many you know, different kinds of things is the new role that women are coming to play in society, in the economy, in politics, right? And it all begins, of course, as you know, with the fact that unlike in previous generations, now we have more women who finish high school, who go to college, uh, and uh, who um, essentially want to pursue a career, right? And that is changing everything because for starters, if they pursue a career, then they have fewer babies. So that accelerates population aging, right? Uh, but not only that, uh, the other thing that happens is that uh, women then start accumulating more wealth, right, themselves. And if they accumulate more wealth, then you may as well ask the question, what are they doing with all of that money? Uh, well, uh, they're not spending it, contrary to the conventional wisdom, because women are more thoughtful about the future. So they save more of that money. But then, of course, if they save it, they also want to invest it. Uh, but you know what, Matt? They are more risk averse than you and I, than the average uh, males. Uh, so then, uh, you know, they're introducing these new dynamics in financial markets, right? So for me, uh, the changing role of women is pivotal. It's like so central to so many things that are going on because it has all of these ramifications here and there, right? So I always start, uh, you know, analyzing what the future may bring with thinking about what are women doing? Because uh, what women are doing is going to change everything in the world. It's, it's, it's by far the biggest change, but it's also the one that has 
more consequences for so many other things, consumption, savings, investment, uh, political issues, um, uh, you know, all sorts of things about uh, our lives and the future of our lives. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, one of my clients is a, uh, let's just say, very powerful woman. She's in very powerful situations and actually works in some capacity with the U.S. military in some degree. And she notices how they function, you know, and her natural uh, function is a little bit different. The way she thinks is a little bit different. So she's looking for ways to see that in, you know, to kind of like add some of that philosophy or that way of thinking because they're very compartmentalized. It's, you know, masculine for a better term, uh, for lack of a better term. And so I would be curious what society would look like if, if it actually were gender equality as far as, you know, the w amount of CEOs, you know, I'm, I'm definitely for the right person for the job. I don't think, you know, you should just give the women the job because of, of that. I think the right person should have it and there should be, um, it should be equal. Like there should be equal opportunity because we don't see that, you know, really as much out in the workforce and they have a different way of thinking and it's usually much more compassionate. And again, to bring up, you know, some of the native Americans I've learned from uh, most of the tribes are a matriarchy that when they have big disputes, it's the women. And if you think about your household as a kid, you know, when your dad, I remember when my dad was mad at me, like, yeah, okay, that's one thing I probably messed up. But when your mom was mad at you, it's a totally different thing. It's more terrifying. And you also knew you deserved it. You know what I mean? Your dad might just get mad at you because he's impatient. But normally your mom, if she's mad at you, you really pissed her off. And so, um, you know, it's just that they bring a whole different way of thinking to it. And I feel like that that energy in a society would be very beneficial right now. And I'm curious if there's anything you've seen that we can do to promote that or support that. Absolutely. So I, I uh, you know, uh, the comparison that you made between patriarchies and matriarchies a moment ago really resonates with me, right? Because there's nothing written uh, anywhere in our genetics or in history uh, about, uh, you know, the role that men or women should play, a differentiated role, right? And different societies have, um, you know, essentially organized things in different ways. Uh, but the point is that we're going through such a big transformation now, right? Pretty much in every country around the world, uh, with women, in spite of discrimination, in spite of, um, you know, the inequality that you were referring to, essentially making progress, right? Um, being able to pursue whatever dreams, you know, they, they have, right? Uh, you know, they're, they're working in jobs or they're entering professions that, you know, just two generations ago were completely close to women, right? Uh, but here's the thing that I wanted to bring to your attention and to your listeners' attention, Matt, which I think is amazing, you know? So men and women are different. And that's why, you know, we began by saying that, yes, there are patriarchies out there, there are matriarchies. Men and women are obviously biologically different, but also you know, it's a, the, there's so many other things that happen in society that give them different roles. But you know what's going on, which I find fascinating, and I'm going to give you an illustration in a moment, is that as women make progress in terms of being in a better position to pursue their dreams, wherever those may be, right, in a place like Canada, here in the United States, and elsewhere around the world, they're increasingly becoming more like men. This is what I find fascinating, right? So in other words, th that we converge as we have similar experiences, right? Let me give you one example. So you remember when Trudeau, the first Trudeau was uh, prime minister of Canada a long time ago? Uh, <laughs> not, not really. I know what happened. <laughs> I know the second one's here. 
Yeah, I know. <laughs> or Nixon was president here in the United States. Okay, yeah. Richard Nixon was president here in the United States. Look, at the time, women lived eight years longer than men on average. Eight years. Okay, that, that's an eternity, right? <laughs> Today, that number is down to five. Huh. And by the year 2030, here in the United States, it will be down to four. That's the forecast. From, from eight to four, the difference in life expectancy between men and women. How could that be, right? Because women, as you know, tend to be more careful, right? About what they eat, about their lives. Men are more risk takers. Here's the thing. As women have become to work in greater numbers outside of the household, as they have taken on more responsibilities, and um, jobs, they have come under stress. And they have acquired very bad habits. Mm. They drink more, they smoke more, those sorts of things. And that's why we're seeing this convergence, right? And this is what fascinates me, you see, because one day we think, oh, I know what's going to happen in the world, that women are going to become more important, right? that they're going to be making more progress in terms of their careers, that, you know, we're going to have more politicians who are women and so on and so forth. And before we know it, right, there is this convergence, right? So I, I ask the question, what is killing women? Well, what's killing women in the sense that their life expectancy is not as growing as much as before is that they're becoming more like men in terms of their responsibilities that they're acquiring, right? And therefore, for example, among many other things, they're much more under stress. Right. And stress kills you, as you know. Right. Yeah. That's why I think, uh, you know, the way you always put it is like we need to find balance between the mind and the spirit. Right. Mm. It's really important. And when those two things are out of whack, then we experience a stress and a stress kills us. Literally. Yeah. 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 Stress is the number one factor in disease, I believe in, in every disease. So, um, and right now that's kind of one of the coronavirus concerns I have. It's like you put people in lockdown, then uh, people don't have jobs. Uh, the stress is going to go way up. So disease is going to go up and we, we know all this. And so it's a very interesting time. So there's two things I definitely want to cover because I know people are going to be thinking about it. What do you think is going on with the financial markets? You talk a little bit about crypto and Bitcoin and that kind of thing. Okay. Um, some people have said, and I'll just throw out some of the stuff that I've heard and would love your feedback. Um, some people say invest in the metals, you know, gold and silver. Some people say the market's going to crash. I actually interviewed a former Wall Street employee. And she's like, if you understand how money works, you realize the crash is inevitable. But then you go further back into that and the Rockefellers and, and how the banking system works. That's a whole thing in itself that needs to be addressed in the federal reserve and all that kind of crap so yeah 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 <laughs> so, let's get practical here right go into that let's take practical let's get yeah. practical so look <laughs> uh, several points here very quick points and then you can tell me whether i'm not covering uh you know all of this in all of this, uh, its complexity point number one people seem to be appalled at the fact that the economy is not doing well that we have high unemployment and yet the stock market is like, you know, through the roof, okay? Well, there's two very easy explanations for that. One is the Federal Reserve you mentioned. So in other words, they're pumping money and money and money. And it's not just here in the United States, it's also in other parts of the world. And whenever you have so much money because you're trying to prop up the economy, make sure that everybody has enough money to spend and all of that, that money gets spent, but it also gets saved. And that money needs to go somewhere. Right? So the price of gold is through the roof also for the same reason, but so are stocks, right? Because right now, as you know, um, you know, buying a government bond is not a great investment because they're paying nothing, right? In interest. 
And so stocks suddenly are very attractive. That's point number one. Point number two is let's go back to technology. So the airlines, the cruise lines, many companies are not doing well in the stock market. They haven't recovered. Uh, but the stock market is today uh, at the same level as before the pandemic, thanks to the technology sector, right? And uh, look, I mean, we have become so dependent on technology, Matt, for working, right? We're using it right now, you and I, for playing, for shopping, and also for having fun, right? I mean, we're no longer going to movie theaters or to the theater for that matter. We are watching something on Netflix, right? Or some other um, channel. So the, the, the thing here is that technology suddenly has become so central to our lives that everybody wants to have a piece of it. And so they're investing in technology stocks. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, um, you know, there were some uh, issues about them because uh, maybe they went uh, too high up. But that's another, another thing that we have to uh, consider, right? As being extremely, um, you know, uh, important and consequential as to, as to what's going on with financial markets. But more broadly, let me also tell you this. I think uh, it's really important for all of us to realize that, um, look, I mean, financial markets, most of the time they get ahead of themselves, right? And so we need to be very cautious, right? I mean, if you have a little money to invest, I mean, be very careful as to what you do with it. Don't think that shares in your favorite technology company uh, are also are always gonna go up in price. And then this uh, brings me to Bitcoin, right? And cryptocurrencies. I think you also were asking me to say a couple of things about that. Uh, well, look, you know governments, okay? Governments and politicians, they like to raise taxes and they like to spend the money. And, um, you know, the money is normally denominated in a national currency, right? So you have uh, Canadian dollars over there. We have US dollars over here. Everybody has a currency. And uh, governments don't want to lose control over their currency. So I think uh, the future of cryptocurrencies is very bleak. I don't think it's a bright future unless cryptocurrencies are something else than just money. Because if they're just money, governments will always regulate them to death. Okay? Mm. Which, by the way, <laughs> is what has happened with Bitcoin. That if you remember three years ago, Bitcoin went up and then it came down the moment government said, we're going to regulate it more, right? You remember Facebook uh, a few months ago launched uh, Libra, right? Like a new currency. You remember that episode? Yeah. And then, you know, the governments around the world came out, you know, within the first few weeks of the announcement saying, ah, we're not sure about this. I'm not sure we like it. And now Libra is almost dead, right? So here's my prediction, okay? And I'm willing to bet my house, okay, on this, that we will see cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin succeed and become really important if they are more than just money. So they have to become digital tokens. I call them digital tokens. So they're not just money. They're also, you know, coupons. They're also incentives for us to do the right thing, for example, to save the environment, okay? Uh, they're also tokens that enable us to vote in elections or that enable us to track guns or to um, figure out what uh, came into the product that we're buying. If I buy a cream, right, that I put on my body, uh, then I can trace all of the ingredients that go into that cream and I can, for example, learn whether they uh, come from a country that I don't like because, uh, you know, uh, workers are exploited there. Uh, that sort of thing. So I think we need to move beyond the concept of cryptocurrency and embrace a broader, you know, concept of digital tokens with money being 
one of the components in those tokens, but not, you know, just 100% of, of the thing. That's what I think is really, really important for the future. Mm, yeah, I love that. And when I, fr- I only know a very small fraction about uh, cryptocurrency, although I did dive in pretty hard for about three months to try to sort it all out. I was like, I don't understand how this works or what's going on. And one of the concepts that kept coming up was just a way to show appreciation because, uh, you know, like to, to trade currency, like you said, it's kind of like common sense, but outside of that kind of realm that is so heavily legislated, like just one token for one token. So there is a little bit of a, a hopeful spirit to it of like, you know, gratitude and appreciation and a different way to show that. But then how do we take that out into the world, right? Can that gratitude or receiving of that token, whether it's Bitcoin or whether it's a dollar or whether it's a little piece of gold, can that get you what you need in this world? And, you know, money is such a challenging thing because if you go back to, you know, they call it the Babylon money masters or something like that, you know, we're kind of, we're under that because it restricts our freedom a little bit. And luckily for you and I, well, you grew up in Spain, I believe, and then moved to the US, you know, and you've probably done a bit of traveling. We're very fortunate to be in a first world country. And what I wanted to ask was, how do you think, is anything you learned, can it be helpful to apply to peace? Because when I look at global events like what china's doing what's happening in the states with the divide and i start scoping out and i always want to know who is doing thing who is influencing at the highest level so you've got rockefeller banks influencing medicine you've got the banks influencing actually everything you've got the modern pharmaceuticals you've got china and i've been to china and i know what they're doing over there and you don't want to live there i also don't want to live in africa where there's no food and not all of africa but certain parts where there's not enough food for anyone so if i have this opportunity and that's a general statement there's food for some people but people are starving to death 9.1 million people and to me that's unacceptable yeah. and so i'm curious if your book or work if there's any information where we can trend toward peace yeah. trend towards cooperation between governments and the only I think that we can do it without government cooperation, but I'm also hesitant because I, you know, when people are in power, they just use that power and sometimes they don't make good choices for everybody. And it's usually to do with resources. If you've read the book or understand uh, confessions of an economic hitman and how easy it is to take over a country and what they're doing for resources. And, and usually it's not governmental. So that's a lot of, it's a lot of rambling. What do you think of that? <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's a, uh, you know, you've put your finger on precisely what I think is, by far uh, the most important part of, uh, of my thinking about this and, and of the book itself. Um, so um, here's the thing. I think what we need to do is to take control over these things. Uh, I certainly would prefer a world in which governments were talking to one another and sitting and trying to figure out how can we solve some of the biggest problems in the world. And by the way, I think uh, the biggest threat to peace in the future will be climate change. Uh, because you see, climate change is global. But um, when people use that terminology, they seem to be implying that it's going to affect everyone. And that's not true. You know, poor people in the world, certain countries, certain cities are going to be devastated by climate change. But others are not going to be as devastated, right? And, and here's the problem, right? That some people feel more urgency about addressing that change. So we can wait until governments get together and they agree to another, you know, protocol, uh, you know, another Paris uh, Accord. Uh, you know, because that one is now dead. Uh, But I think that as individuals and as communities, we need to take control over that situation. And in the book, I actually suggest that technology um, in this respect can be 
liberating, right? So for example, let me give you a, an example that I think everyone will relate to. Look, Matt, uh, in the world, we waste about a third of the food that we produce. You just mentioned that we have a lot of people going hungry. Well, it's not because we don't produce enough food. It's because so much of the one that we produce is wasted, right? So we let it go bad in our refrigerator or we don't finish what we put on the plate, right? And so I think technology could help us become uh, in the supply chains for food so much more efficient, but also at the point of consumption. For example, why don't we share food, right? So, well, because it's not something that we share. Well, we've started to share rights, right? With Uber or Lyft or all of these companies. We've started to share accommodations. Uh, we're even starting to share clothing, right? With uh, Render Runway and uh, all of these platforms. I think we should seriously consider starting to share food. If I cook too much rice at home one evening, I should be able through a technology platform to share that rice with somebody else, right? In my neighborhood or in my city and to avoid having this problem, right? Of wasting so much food. Again, according to the US Department of Agriculture, we waste about a third and the world, um, you know, the organization in the world uh, uh, that uh, the FAO, right, the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, which is also part of the United Nations, estimates that for the entire world, it's a similar percentage. So look, Matt, we could eliminate the problem of hunger in the world without producing a single additional, you know, um, a unit of uh, corn or wheat. All we would need to do is to become better at as consumers, right, of food. Uh, and I think technology can play a big role. That's interesting. I, I feel like I, I don't know if I saw a legislation or something, but I feel like a few months ago, I saw something where restaurants weren't allowed or, re or grocery stores weren't allowed to just throw out their food. Was re you hear about this? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, There's what all, exactly all sorts of silly regulations out there. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, government issued, uh, many of them by local governments, uh, that are also making our food system more, you know, wasteful, right? And I think that is what we can do as individuals and as communities. We should take control of these things and we should try to use the power of technology to essentially be able to do more with less. And by the way, that would also help the problem of climate change because agriculture is one of the most important sources of uh, carbon emissions in the world. And it would also... Uh, help us uh, make cities more livable and all sorts of things, right? Um, well, excellent. I, was, I thought you were going to keep going there. My mind was kind of processing. Um, what do you think about the future of education? That one's a big one for me. So, you know, I feel like in certain parts of the world, and, and I got a really first world example when I taught snowboarding in Whistler, I would have kids from the US, I'd have kids from Australia, from Europe, from Canada. And depending on the country, they would have a very different education very often. And it seemed that the United States, the kids that would come up from Seattle and the different parts, and there's other spots as well, but a lot from Seattle, their education wasn't as world-based. Where the kids from Australia and Europe, they had a they had a bigger understanding of, of Canada, of U.S., of the rest of the world. Uh, U.S. seemed to be very U.S. centric. Oh yeah. And um, so, you know. <laughs> Tell me about I, it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, especially I, at the at the primary and secondary level. And as you know, uh, there's also this culture war going on, uh, whereby 
in some parts of this country, uh, the theory of evolution in biology is actually, you know, uh, taught by side by side with creationism, right? And of course, there's uh, from a scientific point of view, I think, uh, you know, we should teach evolution. Uh, but of course, I'm all in favor of teaching religion and uh, teaching uh, the role that uh, religion and ethics more broadly uh, play in the development of an individual. But I think uh, we should try to keep, uh, you know, both things uh, separate. Uh, so, so I think we have a problem with, uh, with that. We also have a problem with uh, unequal access to education, right? Even in the US, in Canada, in, in France, in the UK, I mean, some kids get to go to schools that are well-funded, that have resources, and others don't. Uh, but you know what the biggest global challenge will be in the next 10 years? And I think it's a challenge that unless we address it, uh, it's going to create a lot of problems. You see, between now and 2030, 400 million babies will be born in sub-Saharan Africa. 400 million. And many of them, about half of them, will be born in rural areas. Matt, we need to educate them. Uh, because if we don't educate them, I think, um, you know, the future of those children is not going to be as good. And uh, we're talking about a very large number. Africa is quickly becoming the second biggest uh, region in the world in terms of population. So we can no longer ignore what's going on in Africa. For better or worse, we need to pay attention to what's going on in Africa. So, you know, I think uh, that's another big challenge that we need to address. And uh, probably technology will need to play a role because I don't think they're going to be able to you know, uh, build uh, schools uh, that fast. Uh, but maybe technology, maybe we can learn something from the experiment that we're going through now in terms of many children learning from the home, right? Through technology. Um, so let's see what happens. But yeah, there's a lot of challenges. And uh, I'm glad that you brought this up because obviously as an educator, I believe that education is, uh, is really, really important and that uh, so many other things hinge on to what extent we provide people with an education. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, especially in a country like Africa. Well, they, they need basic education, but some of them just need basic food, water, and opportunity to grow, you know? Yeah, I yeah, think but that's the thing. Uh, I mean, if you educate people, if you provide them with um, some knowledge, maybe they can grow more food. You see, the opportunity in Africa is huge because, yes, they don't produce enough food right now to feed everyone, but, you know, their productivity is so low. I mean, their productivity is, in some cases, 100 times lower than in Canada or the United States, right? When it comes to producing basic uh, uh, staples. Um, so just uh, if, if you can educate farmers and the sons and the daughters of farmers in rural areas, they can become so much more efficient. And I'm not saying that they should become as productive as a Canadian farm or an American farm, but if they can become at least as, you know, 30% as productive, that would make a huge difference. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Because right now the gap is, you know, humongous. Yeah, 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 a hundred percent, absolutely. And so, do you see any um, legislation or anything that prevents that from happening? Well, one of the problems is that um, you know, oftentimes governments, um, you know, don't get along with uh, nonprofits that are trying to help uh, with this situation on the ground, uh, and even with businesses, right? I mean. I, I've talked to a lot of business people from Africa and what they tell me is that they would like to make a contribution to educating the next generation of African babies. Uh, but sometimes governments don't want them to interfere, right? Because they have their own plans. Um, that happens, by the way, also in developed countries, not just uh, in Africa, right? So I think, uh, you know, what we need is, is to have more uh, initiatives, and we need to try out, you know, different solutions. I think, uh, once again, technology 
certainly has to play a role in all of this. I think there are solutions out there, but we need to work hard to implement them. Awesome. Okay. And I want to get, this is a big one. I want to kind of throw it in there, but uh, you know, we talked a little bit about the coronavirus. When you wrote this book, that hadn't happened. And so I'm curious, uh, at what point did it happen and, and how much has it either changed what you wrote or influenced like where we're going? What do you see happening? Because when it happened, I spent about an absurd amount of hours, probably at four or 500 hours researching things. And I learned a lot. I learned so much in the last few months because I, I like to know why things are happening. And I learned about World Health Organization, the Flexner Report, germ theory versus terrain theory, um, you know, more about China, more about vaccines than I ever knew. Um, and there's something called the fourth industrial revolution that scares the crap out of me. And this is listed on, on sites like Strategic Intelligence from the World Economic Forum that did U Event 201 which was a planned pandemic exercise in October 2019 before the pandemic. And so there's all this stuff. And then they say, hey, this is what we want to do. They want to put a vaccine, a chip in a vaccine and then give you an ID card. This is, this is written out. This, yeah. is, this is terrifying to me. Um, and I don't like it. And uh, I'm just curious if you see it trending that way. And, and that's where I kind of see the Borg thing between like, you know what Elon Musk is talking about with Neuralink, if that's the crappy one, but already in China, they have social credit with their phones. So if I'm not a good citizen, if I don't get my shots, if I don't comply with exactly what my government wants me to, um, then I can't go travel to British Columbia or wherever it be in the States. They, this exists right. in China. And so that kind of influence, and, and I, don't, I don't like politics, and I looked four months into politics just to see who would have sold out, what what people were moving towards money to have a, have a legislation or what people are trying to work for the people. And so it's a very general thing I'm throwing at you and I'm curious what your thoughts are, but how do we move towards organization of people, not even politics, but leadership that actually cares for people. We keep them honest, but we know that they're working in our best interests at heart because with vaccines and pharmaceuticals they are the number one lobbyists in USA and Canada, um, the number one advertiser. And I learned about all this stuff. And so I'm, I'm concerned there's definitely a place for modern medicine, hundred percent. But when you're moving into profit and the flex in the report and all that other stuff, then it's like, we need some checks and balances to ensure that you're doing this for the right reasons. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think the, the ethics of um, uh, pandemics and of vaccines and vaccinations and all of that, are, are really, really complex and we need to pay attention to them. Uh, but look, I think there's only one cure, if you want to put it that way, which is transparency. So for example, last week, to tell you the truth, I was actually very pleased to see that two companies that were running trials on their vaccines, they disclosed, right, that um, one person in each of the trials had developed severe symptoms. And I think they did the right thing in terms of being transparent because, uh, Otherwise, if that information had been leaked, I think uh, the public's confidence in the vaccine would have been undermined in a, in a big way. Uh, but going back to the beginning of your question, look, I think this pandemic just accelerates things. Um, so when I wrote the book, uh, you know, yes, most of the time I didn't know that the pandemic was occurring. I did manage to change uh, a few things in the book and adding a postscript uh, in the wake of the pandemic. Uh, but look, uh, the pandemic is accelerating everything. It's accelerating the adoption of technology. It's accelerating population aging because we're postponing having babies. So that's what always happens when we're confronted with a crisis such as this. Uh, the pandemic is exacerbating inequality, as you know. 
I mean, minorities and uh, uh, poor people are more affected uh, than others. Uh, so, you know, my only regret, going back to the, uh, the first uh, part of your question, is that I think the book should be called 2028 because the future is arriving earlier, right, faster. I mean, this pandemic, this wretched pandemic, is having the effect of accelerating everything. The future is coming our way much faster than before the pandemic. And one final thought about vaccinations and all of that. Look, I mean, we don't need to vaccinate 100% of the population. There's always going to be people who say, I don't want to be vaccinated. There's always going to be people for whom getting a vaccine is actually dangerous, right? Because of some other condition that they have. But as you know, there is this very important concept of herd immunity, right? Which means enough people, let's say 60%, 70%, are immune to the virus, either naturally because they've had the virus or because they get a vaccine. And that essentially means that then the virus has no more room for growth. They have, the virus has no more people to infect once you reach 60 or 70%. So I think we have some wiggle room there. But once again, I want to emphasize something Matt, that I think is extremely important, which is all of these powerful interests that you were talking about, governments, pharmaceutical companies, um, you know, health organizations, uh, uh, public health officials, they need to be transparent with us. Because if they're not transparent, they're going to undermine their own efforts. They're going to make it so much harder, right? For people to believe in whatever it is that they tell us that we need to do. So I think, uh, you know, they should frame the word transparency and just put it in front of, uh, you know, uh, of their door, and on their desk, and behind their desk, everywhere. Uh, I think without transparency on the part of all of those vested interests, because there's many, I mean, a lot of money is at stake in all of this, as you know, without transparency, I don't think we're ever going to make it through this pandemic. Hmm. Well, yeah, uh, that would be amazing. I, I would love that. And, and I'm curious how things are going. You know, I try to stay positive when I'm looking at some of the stuff that I see laid out because we're getting more divided now than ever, right? Like with the vaccines, you're, you know, you say, oh, well, some people want a choice. Um, and then, you know, you might want to do your own research. And even just on the, I never even looked into vaccines. And then because of this, I did. And I watched a debate between Robert Kennedy and Alan Dershowitz. And when you see a debate, then you know which one is more reasonable. And Robert Kennedy destroyed him. It wasn't even a contest. And so it made you question. And then you could go verify all these things. So if there's an agenda to say, hey, everyone has to have it. And now we're going to legislate that. You're like, well, who is doing that? And then you can follow it and you find these people. And so that's where I kind of see things going. I'm just curious if your research saw that too, where it's like you seem to have these power structures that they want to just do what they do. They want to sell their product and they want to have influence and maybe not even for malice. They're just like, the product is good. We just want to get it out there. So Bill Gates says, everybody's got to be vaccinated in the world. It's like, well, what if I don't want to? You know what I mean? And so then we see all this other stuff. But what's happening is in the public eye, people are getting uh, very angry and they're getting very divisive. Yeah. Uh, uh, for some families not communicating, I've seen that. Uh, some friends have you know, been lost, they've seen that. Um, and I've seen you know, more divisiveness. And my hope is that this disruption is a catalyst for what can come next in a positive way. But when I look at Davos and I look at the strategic intelligence, they have the post-COVID world. I don't know if you've seen the strategic intelligence. Powerful people, the post-COVID world in extraordinary detail. And it's not a, 
pleasant looking world. It's yeah, it's yeah. very it's very frightening. And so yeah, I want to build the utopia. I don't want to build the you know I got to scan my eyeball to go shopping and you know have five shots in me. Well, look, man, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, but we should take all of those uh, vested interests, uh, you know, structural, you know, sources of power as a given, right? Uh, and right now we don't have time to like, uh, you know, fight the pharmaceuticals. What I think is we should work with them and we should demand of them transparency. And the same thing goes for governments. Um, and yes, I agree with you. I mean, we should be utopian a little bit, right? That's always a, a good attitude, but we should also, you know, think about the downside. We should also try to avoid a dystopia, right? We should also try to avoid a situation in which we just have you know, something approaching the end of the world because collectively we make the, the wrong choices. And I think right now, uh, increasingly, yes, I agree with you, we're seeing frustration. We're seeing people who now they're being told, oh, you have to go back perhaps into uh, more confinement in the home and blah, blah, blah. This is going on, as you know, in Europe right now, big debate. But you know, the alternative is we don't bring this uh, beast under control. And that's going to be even worse, right? So I think uh, we need to strike a balance, right? Between just uh, letting other people telling us what to do without a good explanation on the one hand. And on the other, uh, just uh, each of us doing whatever we, we want, right? I mean, we need to have some, some guidance here. And again, we should, we should aspire to building a utopia. I don't see why not, right? Or utopian society. Uh, but again, uh, we need to be very careful not to fall into the trap of... Uh, perhaps creating a monster, right? In so doing. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. It's, it's, uh, the middle way is always usually the best and, and the balance. And I feel like it's getting more challenging for people who are facing more adversity when they're losing their jobs, when they have um, less opportunity, right? So that, that want to make a positive impact is like, no, I just need to eat. And so we're in very fascinating times. And I hope that we as a civilization, as humanity, you know, can upgrade. And again, just to bring up the wisdom of the Native Americans again, they would tell me the next upgrade for humanity is peace. And, yep. you know, I would love for a day where we, where we see peace. And, and I'm always going to hope for that and strive for that no matter what's happening in the external world because it's uh, madness out there. And so um, the last thing that I want to ask you, and I really appreciate your time, um, is there anything that you wish that I had asked you and, and so add that to this question. What of your research is most important for people to know right now? Because what I'm observing and getting a lot of feedback, I have some group of people that are like, they're staying in this and like, you know, everything's kind of fine, but I know they're financially okay. Mm -hmm. Now the other people have been severely affected and then they've looked at things and they see the same things that I do. It's like, no, I see that. I see that. It's, a, it's written down. So you can't mistake it. It's there and it's not good. It's very scary. And so my hope is that we're able to transcend it. And so what do you suggest from what you've seen to navigate these challenging times? In, it, do you have any hopeful research? I guess yep. that's what I'm asking. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I think... Um, there's always hope and I'm an optimist. And I think that we can be more optimistic if we start thinking outside of the box, okay? I mean, we need to uh, step out of our comfort zone. And, and by all means, we need to start, um, you know, abandoning some of the assumptions that we've been making all along. Two quick examples. So you just referred to inequality. 
I think we need to start thinking about how can we stop inequality from becoming even more, you know, um, of a of a problem in the world, right? Many of the frictions, many of the issues that we have, just go back to this to this problem of inequality, right? And as you know, some people are are saying, well, the government should, uh, you know, provide everyone with a basic income, right? Uh, so that they can cover their basic necessities. Well, that's an idea. I have, um, you know, my qualms about it, but uh, it's, a, it's an idea worth debating. And maybe we can come up with, you know, a great, you know, solution to inequality uh, that builds on that idea of a basic income. Uh, but another example is, uh, you know, as you know, Matt, um, we're going through population aging. I mean, before we know it, we're going to have more grandparents than grandchildren. And think about what that means, right? And so I think we need to start thinking outside of the box. I mean, we've inherited from the 19th century, not from the 20th century, from the 19th century, this idea that when you're young, you study, when you become an adult, you work, and uh, when you turn 60 or 65, you retire. And that compartmentalization of life in stages, I think is wrong. Because especially when so many things are changing, we're gonna have to go back to school several times or to learn new things several times, right? And not only that, retirement, retirement is oversold. I mean, who wants to be, you know, 25 years in retirement? Because you see the typical 60 year old these days lives for another 25 years on average, right? I think retirement is completely oversold, right? Overrated. And maybe those people should continue to work or go back to school and do other things, right? So again, I think the general principle is in answer to your question, if we want to be optimistic, if we want to be able to address these uh, problems, let's think outside of the box. Let's be creative. Let's abandon some of those assumptions that we've inherited from another time. Beautiful. I love it. I totally agree. Uh, thank you so much for your time and coming on the show. Thanks for you know your your input and your insights. Where can people find you and your book? It's out now, right? Yes, it's um, available everywhere where books are sold online or at your favorite uh, local bookstore. And I would love to be in touch with your listeners if they want to reach out to me, my email uh, or on LinkedIn. Uh, and uh, if they Google my name, they can easily find uh, both my LinkedIn uh, handle and, uh, and also my, my email. So I, I look forward to continuing the conversation if they reach out to me. Awesome. Well, I appreciate your work. We'll have to get you to write another one next year to see how this how this shapes out. It's going to be Absolutely. the most. <laughs> I would love to have history. another conversation with you and we should definitely do it before the year 2030. Okay. It sounds good. Well, thank you so much for your work. Thanks for coming on the show. We'll definitely stay in touch. Thank you so much, Matt. Okay. See you tomorrow. Yep. See you guys. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the absolutely phenomenal Moro Gillen. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please share it. Facebook, social media, Instagram, uh, tag me, do all that kind of thing. Uh, join the email list at mattbelair.com. If you go to the link tree forward slash mattbelair, you're going to find some freebies like elusive dreaming and things like that uh, to entice you to join the email list. But because I'm getting censored, shadow banned, and literally deleted, um, staying close and in an inner community uh, is the best way to stay connected. If you want to join the academy, that's over at mattbelair.com as well. And you're going to find the link to the Soul Compass course, which is really the distill, dis, the distillation of 
thousands of hours of study, as well as 400 episodes of a podcast to help you really uncover your life purpose, your life direction, uh, overcome limitations, design it, and add in the peak performance and spiritual practices to help you build your dreams as as easily as you can. It's more of a direction and a process um, more than it's easy. But when you lock into it and working with the clients that I have of, you know, not having any idea what they want to do and and how they want to build their life and and within a very short time being incredibly clear on their direction and make leaps and bounds of progress, it's really inspiring. So if you want some support, hit me up, mattbailer.com. Go through the Soul Compass course or apply for some coaching. We'd love to work with you and support you in building the dreams, uh, your dreams, um, deliberately to create a life of fulfillment and joy. So that's it. Let's uh, come to a state of peace and coherence before we close this out. Wherever you are in the world, just stop what you're doing. Take in a deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath and let it out slowly, filling every cell, muscle, and fiber of your being with peace, joy, contentment, enthusiasm, inspiration and ready to take on the rest of the day so thank you so much for listening and i look forward to seeing you in the next episode peace